All right. So we're going to go over uh, July the 3rd. We're just starting our lesson today for all the people that's on the tape. And we're going to... St- we're going to start or finish up lesson number five on our handout and then go forward. So um, lesson five, if you have that, if not, it's not a big deal. The last two people that I didn't really talk about was Augustine and Jerome. I don't know if you have that list. You can go back and look at it. But not these are some early church false fathers, okay? So it depends. Again, when you look at church history, it's from two perspectives. And remember what I said, up until 1500, how many types of churches were there? Two. You had a Bible-believing group, church, and you had the Catholic church. And again, I'm not trying to pick on the Catholics. I'm just saying what, what history shows us, okay? And so... When you look at church history, you'll get it from that two perspectives. You'll get it from the Catholic side or you'll get it from the Bible-believing side. And they don't match because one of them wants to lift their people up and say, these were our church fathers, like, you know, like our George Washingtons and our, our Thomas Jefferson group. And so when we, these last two guys on our list are, are two guys that the Catholic church will... will throw out there and say, these are our church fathers and they're good Christian men. But when you look at what they did, you can find out real quickly uh, where their position was. So let's look at Augustine. He was from 354 to 430 AD. And uh, he was called the Bishop of Hippo. Now, right off the bat, that doesn't sound real neat. How would you like to be the Bishop of Hippo? You know? There's a new commercial out. Have you seen it where these guys, this cowboy's riding a hippo? Has anybody seen that one? Looks pretty ridiculous, but anyway. He's called the Bishop of Hippo because in his theology is the basis of many of the false churches, false heresies. So his greatest heresy that this man taught was that he, uh, he, he wrote a book. And in this book titled The City of God... Uh, he declares that Rome has replaced Jerusalem. Oh, so we call that today replacement theology. So basically it is that every promise that God gave the Old Testament Jew, since the Jews rejected Christ on the cross, God's taking them and they're giving them to the Catholic Church. That's what they believe. Okay, He taught that. He wrote a book about it. Okay, And so there are people today that believe the same thing. They believe that, that and now think about this, the Catholic Church has, has um, uh, set up things inside their organization that basically resemble an Old Testament with the priest and the sacrifices and, and the way they did things, and they've kind of molded them into their belief. But basically they think and they believe that they are taking the place of Israel and the Jews of the Old Testament because they are the who God has instructed everything to. They were way out of line, but that's what they teach. This guy taught that, okay? And he taught that Jesus would return in 1000 AD. I think he missed that. But he would only come back if all the heretics had been killed and the church was ready to accept Jesus to come back. So 
so they use that as an excuse. Well, we've got to get rid of these heretics because if we don't get rid of these heretics, then Christ will not come back. So obviously they didn't get rid of all the bapt- I mean the heretics because he did not come back, okay? Um, so that's basically what he taught. And, and not only did he teach that, the church, the false church, accepted this heresy and they were bent on forcing this out in history. And that is one reason we've seen such a tremendous um, attack on Bible believers down through the history of the churches because they really believe that, they have, that it's God's will for them to exterminate anybody that doesn't believe like them. Okay, So that's what Augustine taught. And then you got Jerome. He's the last guy on our list from 340 to 420 AD. And first of all, he claims that he had a personal appearance of Jesus Christ. Or of of Christ. And my point is, which Christ did he get an appearance from? Because there are more than one Christ. Okay? And this appearance, when uh, Christ appeared unto him, healed him. And uh, Jerome went to Origen's library. Remember, Origen was the guy that was the, the teacher that was back in Egypt, and he had the school, and then he had the Bible, and he completely rewrote the Bible because he would just get to a passage that he didn't understand, and he'd just pitch it and put in what he wanted. Remember him? Well, he went to his library, and he took his works and rewrote the Bible again, and it was called the Latin Vulgate. Anybody heard of that? Okay. And so for the next thousand years, the Latin Vulgate is the official Bible of the Catholic Church. Okay. Now at the Council of Trent in 1565, it was decreed that it is the only Bible to be used and that it was the true Bible and all other Bibles were to be cursed, destroyed, and burned. Okay. There must not have been very many Bibles around because you know the Catholics. The priests are the only ones who read the Bible, who teach the Bible, and the common Catholics do not have any access to it or don't care about having any access to it. Okay. And so another problem with this Bible that it was translated into Latin, and yet the majority of the world spoke Greek. So again, they brought the Bible to a a different language that only the priest could read, and so they basically took the Bible that they even had away from the people. Okay, and okay, let me just make a comment that they were really afraid of if the people knew what the Bible said, they wouldn't go along with what the Catholic Church was teaching, and so they didn't want it in the people's language. You're right. You're right. And I'll give you a modern-day example. And, and Roger's been giving me some modern-day examples of dealing with Catholic people. So let me throw one out to you, Roger. I, I dealt with a, a builder, and he was the grouchiest old builder I ever saw in my life. And he always complained about everything, but we did his work. And he, he, he talked one day about his family. His last name was Garza. But he must have been Spanish. He wasn't Mexican. He was he was a white guy. And he goes, well, I used to go to church with my mom and my grandma to the Catholic church when I was little. And he mentioned in 19... I can't remember. I thought it was in the 50s. He goes, I remember going to church with my mom and grandma sitting there in the 
in the pews, and it was the f- first service that they had in English because they had always been in Latin. And at the end of the service, he goes, my grandma reached over to my mom and said, wow, that's what they've been saying all along in Latin? Why are we still going to this church? <laughs> and, and again, they would have it in Latin and the people would not understand. They just come like, you know, like sheep and they sit in the pews and they, they think, oh, it's a godly language and only the priest has the ability to, to read Latin or speak Latin. And they would even speak to the people which can't understand it and they would think, oh, that's just a heavenly language. And when they finally realized what it was, this guy's grandma's like, Basically saying, we've been shammed. Now, I don't know if they left the church or not. I don't think he did. I think he did, but I don't know about his grandparents. But I'm just, God shows you little tidbits if you just pay attention to what's going on. So basically, not only that, but the common people could not read it, but they were also forbidden to read it. Okay, so that was all kind of started with Jerome. And so for about the next thousand years after Jerome, we have a period called the Dark Ages because they tried to take the true Bible and destroy it, and the true Bible believers and destroy them. And so from about 500 A.D. all the way up until about 1500 A.D., before the Reformation broke out, it was basically war on God's people and God's Bible. Okay? And think about it, we would be out of work if we still didn't exist in our armory and word first wouldn't exist. We'd be running for our lives probably if that was still there. So then we have some councils, church councils. Okay, and so let me just give you anything that's usually a counsel in the Bible. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? It's usually against God. Okay, yeah. And so uh, uh, one of the first uh, Catholic councils that they had was in Nicaea in 325. So as we've studied church history and we've been moving forward, we started right at the very beginning, right after the apostles, right after Paul, and then you have the churches, and then about 100 AD, there's some for lack of a better term, a mega, there's a mega church that comes in and wants all the little churches to, to gravitate to them, and then they want to be a somebody and rule over the small churches, right? That was one of the first heresies, and yet we know that mega church kind of turned into the Catholic church, and it just exploded and went from there. So the Catholic church has a council called the Council of Nicaea in 325. That's the first one on our list there, if you have your handout. And the creed here, the law that they discussed was the Apostles' Creed on the deity of Christ. So they were talking about the big, the big topic for their, I don't want to say Bible conference, but their conference, their council, was, was trying to nail down the deity of Christ. Who is Christ and is, is he God? Well, you know. Bible believers had been saying that for 300 years, who he was. And then not only did they have a topic of discussion that they would try to agree on, they would also have a curse, or they would always have, and so this is what we're talking about, this is the subject for this year, and this is the people, the people group that we're going to work on because they need help. Like maybe a bullet in the head. But anyway, the curse at this council was against the Donatists, of course, we studied them, and anybody that would not sign their document of what they decided on the deity of Christ. 
so that's basically the first council of Nicaea in 325, and I'm not going to go into more detail. And so then the second one on our list is the, the council of Constantinople in 381. And so we'll find out that Constantinople, um, there's going to be several councils there. And so this one's in 381, and the creed, the, the topic of the day was the personality of the Holy Spirit, the humanity of Jesus Christ, and the role or the importance of the Bishop of Rome. So that was their topic, okay? And then their curse at this one was against uh, several guys, uh, one group called the Montanist, the... Um, and a couple of the other groups that we've already talked about earlier. So basically, some Bible-believing groups. They were against those. And then the third one is Ephesus. Before you go any further, the first one, did they accept the deity of Christ? Honestly, I don't remember. And I don't know, but they had some problem with the deity of Christ. And almost every time they, they have a problem, they, they go against what the Word of God says. I will say that. Because I was just wondering, okay, did they why, why end is, up accepting Why is the deity of Christ even a subject? I mean, have we had a Bible conference here, that, that or a, not a, a mission conference here, that this topic we're going to talk about is, is Christ, was Christ really God? That's kind of the subject they're talking about. Now, the outcome, I'm not quite sure what the outcome was. But, uh, yeah, very good question. We'd have to go back and study that. Um, so then the third one was the, on Ephesus. And the creed there was the unity of Christ's personality. <laughs> what does that mean? Okay. The unity of her personality. Okay, well, let's see. But also it says, or I mean of Christ's personality. And also Mary is declared to be the God-bearer. Okay. But they define the God-bearer as the mother of God. So you can kind of see the things they're talking about are just, you know, why would those even come up? Okay, And the curse at, at this council was against uh, the Nestorians and a couple other Bible-believing groups. So basically what they do, they'd have a council, they go, this, we're going to decide and nail down some things that we believe, and anybody that doesn't believe it, we're going to go after them specifically. Okay? And then number four on our list is uh, the council of, how do you print? I don't even know how to say this one, Chal Chalcedron in 451 AD. And at this, this council, they formalized... What they talked about at the Nicene Creed back in 325. See, they couldn't even agree upon themselves with a lot of this stuff. And they talked about the two natures of Christ. Pope Leo I and all the popes now have been decided that they speak directly from Peter. And they get their authority from Peter as being the first pope. And yet history never shows us that Peter was ever in Rome. Okay. The curse here was against uh, the group called uh, the Eutericans, which refused to call Mary the mother of God. So and then they went after that group. Okay, And then number six on our list is another uh, council at Constantinople in 553. In fact, I got a couple of these mixed up. Let me see. 
Yes, 553. And the creed here was the perpetual virginity of Mary and that Christ was begotten in eternity past. The curse was against the Nestorians. And in 681, we have another one at Constantinople and the creed there is, was the human and divine wills of Christ. And it was against a group of people called the Monithelites. Again, another Bible-believing group. Now, I don't know why they had to keep changing Bible-believing groups unless they wiped that group out in the meantime, Okay, which I think is probably the case. And then the seventh one on our list goes back to Nicaea in 787, and the creed there, what they talked about was the approval of the worship of relics, images, and saints. Okay? And the curse was against all those groups that opposed this new worship. So again, remember we talked about when, when you start off and you tell a lie, and then what do you got to do next? You got to tell another lie to get that one and tell another lie. You know, it doesn't stop. And so when, when, when the false church began a heresy, that heresy would just fall over into another one and another one, and it just starts snowballing. And you can see it in their councils. They're talking about, you know, basically who is Christ in this, and then they just start going off to where, you know, they're worshiping now Mary as the mother of God, and they just continually get worse and worse and worse. The Bible is... is uh, Basically, we'll say excommunicated. They want to get rid of any Bible except theirs. And they want to get rid of any body except theirs. And again, it matches their theology because in the first 1,000 years, their theology was, well, if we, we have to get rid of all the heretics or Jesus won't come back. And yet there are people today that the church has to get to a point before Christ comes back. And we call that... Um, all millennialism, I believe it is, that, that Christ will not come back until the church gets to the point that it has fulfilled its job. Well, let me tell you, things are getting worse and worse instead of better and better. Okay, So that's the end of that. Uh, again, I don't like to relish in these guys because they're basically the enemy. <laughs> but I just threw them out there because we need to have a little bit of that in our history. So from about the time of Paul all the way up until 1500, uh, the Bible-believing churches and Bible believers have been ran out of their countries, ran out of their homes, and hunted down and killed, basically. And it's like, well, why would God allow that? Good question. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? There's a book called that. I read it, and it was terrible. Okay. So, yeah. So why does God allow that? And yet the Bible says those that live godly shall what? Suffer persecution. And so um, we got to realize we are in a war here between God and Satan. And I mean, it's a war and we don't, we don't fathom that. And even today, even today, certain groups would, would like to exterminate us if they could. But they can't at this point anyway. So let's, let's move a little farther. So we're going to kind of get out of that, 
back into where I wanted to go today. And so we found out that the early church we talked about last week goes through a transition, right? I made a big deal about the Pentecostals in Acts 2. Because in Acts 2, all these people are there at the day of Pentecost and they go back home. They go back to Rome, they go to North Africa, they go back to Europe, they go to Saudi Arabia, they go to all those places and yet they bring the good news of Jesus back but it's not 100% finished. Because when they go, if you go back and look at Acts 2, they say you have to believe that Jesus died, he, he, he was buried, and he rose again. Okay, they got that down, and then Peter told them, you got to realize that, and, and as a result of you real, realizing that, you need to repent and be baptized. And yet, by the time we get to Acts 15, at the church of Antioch, it is... How do you get saved then? It's by accepting Christ as your Savior by faith alone. Remember, we, we, the, the church of Antioch had some people from the church at Jerusalem came to them and said, wait a minute, guys, there's a couple of things you got to do to be saved. One of them is you got to be, um, what was it? What did they tell them in Acts 15? He had to be circumcised. Okay? And then they said, not only that, then to stay saved, you got to do what? you got to do a work, which is follow the law. And they took it back to the church at Jerusalem. And, they, and first of all, when that came in here, and I, and I likened it like this. Can you imagine what the pastors would say here if somebody comes into the church and says, Hey guys, um, all you men, um, really, truly to be saved, you got to be circumcised. What, what do you think Pastor Brian would do? Clap? No. Would probably be yanking him off the stage and taking him out back and, and show him a better way with sticks or something. But uh, no, <laughs> no, we would not allow that. Or and then we go, oh, you got to follow the Old Testament law. No, well, let me show you why. Okay, but that's what the, that's what Paul and Barnabas were doing. They already saw people getting saved. They already knew that was not true. They knew that, but these two people from uh, from uh, Jerusalem did not figure that out yet and so when they went back to Jerusalem they got that all worked out and James says okay you're saved basically by faith and faith alone okay and then it's pretty well set and in that time period the early church from Acts 2 to Acts 15 is trying to work through this and yet they're basically all Jewish and they're having a really hard time but they finally are starting to get that in their head that you are just saved by faith alone okay and so all these churches or all these people that scattered at the day of Pentecost and went back home, what message were they giving people? Well, Jesus was the Savior. He was the Messiah. He died and was buried and rose again. You've got to believe that. Well, they didn't see it. So when they did believe that, they'd have to do it by faith. But yet Paul wanted to give them that gospel. That's why the, the Bible says that Paul talks about the gospel being his, because God gave him the, the decree that you are saved by faith plus nothing. Okay? That was given to Paul. So it took some time to work out. Okay? And so anyway, so the early church goes through a transition in the book of Acts. And from Acts 2 to 15, it finally sinks in to most of the people. And the church really, if you think about it, starts out Jewish, but where does it go? It goes to the Gentiles. And then the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders 
in Acts chapter, I believe it's 7, with Stephen, finally reject Stephen. And basically, they're rejecting the gospel. And so the, the Jewish religion, you know, kind of pulls a lot of these people on the fence back in under them, but yet there are some Jewish people that are already basically saved at that point, and they kind of get pulled into the, the church, and the church becomes more Gentile than it does Jewish. I said all that because it's just we can't go to Acts 2, 3, or 4 and get our doctrine. We've got to wait a little bit till it's worked through. Okay, And so it goes through a transition. And the Jewish uh, church had a hard time with this, but it finally came through. But let's get to it. If you have a Bible with you today, let's turn over to Psalms 33, 12. And we're going to keep moving. And when I get somebody there, I'm going to have you read that for me. Psalms 33.12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom He hath chosen for His own inheritance. Okay. Very good verse. So that verse is specifically to, to the Jewish nation. But it can also apply inspirationally to the church because we are his people, right? And so... Um, it could apply, apply to the United States at the beginning of our nation. It could, yeah. And so I want to focus on that. I want to switch gears again and kind of jump forward in our study and just kind of focus on kind of the 4th of July and things going on today. And then we'll get back in our study next week. But... The reason, have you ever thought about why the, the United States is such a powerhouse in the world today? What do you think it is? I got to stop asking questions, but I can't do that. Because why do you think the United States is like number, I don't know if we're number one anymore. But I mean, what made the United States, United States rise to one of the most powerful countries in the world? Because it was built on God on godly concepts, on getting away from Europe and what they believed and wanting God as the sinner. Okay. No, you are right on track. Number one, it's because, um, first of all, of the Bible-believing Christians that live in this country is the reason why our country is a great nation. Not, not only that, like Sharon said, our laws are based on biblical truths. Okay, and number three of uh, the uh, the Bible believing churches in our country that are trying to fulfill the Great Commission. Okay, and God is going to bless that. Okay, and He has blessed that because and, and basically, uh, again, Baptist heritage, and I'm not doing this this Baptist heritage to puff ourselves up and say, you know, we're all that a bag of chips like we've heard people talk about. But, you know, it's it. we've been very fortunate that I, I'm so glad I was I, I, I was saved at a young age and I went to a Baptist church, okay? Because the Baptist church was the one that was teaching the Bible. Now, if I was born into a different family that went to a different church, would I still be in that church? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But, um, uh, 
the, let me just flat out say it. The Baptists have been very instrumental in, in our country making it as great as it is. So I want you to kind of keep that in your mindset today. Wow. That influence. Yes? I was just going to throw out a thought too. You know, the Bible tells us that God says He will bless those who bless Israel. And I think we're about the only friend that Israel has had for years, you know. Yeah. And I just, sometimes in the news we see we'll, we'll do something against Israel. And I can't think of any examples right now, but it seems like in the past whenever something, whenever we go a little bit against Israel, we have maybe Katrina or, you know, something along those lines. But, but I do believe that United States helping Israel is a blessing to this country. Oh, it's absolutely a blessing. You know, a year ago we went through some, we went through the promises and the things that God did for individuals in the Bible. And we talked about Abraham. And one of the promises was, I'll bless those that bless you, Abraham, and I will curse those that curse you. And our, even though our country at the very beginning, Israel wasn't even formed yet. So with Truman and all that, that's happened. And Carrie and I, a couple years ago, there was a, um, uh, which one from Israel came over and begged our Congress. Okay, he came over and he begged our Congress basically to not allow the president to give them money to Iran or whatever they were doing. They were trying to enter into that nuclear agreement. Right. And when when that happened, when he came over here, that, that was a major deal. I mean, I came home and Carrie goes, you need to watch what was happening today. And it's just like, if, if you are a Bible-believing Christian and you hear, see the, the premier, I don't know what you call him, Prime Minister of Israel come over and beg us not to do something and our president just thumbed his nose at him and says, we're going to do it anyway. We don't care if it destroys you or not, basically. It just kind of broke our hearts because we should be for Israel, yet the Bible says. So you're right on, Steve. So we have blessed them. But yet, uh, Baptists have made a tremendous contributions to America, spiritually, politically, and militarily. And we'll find that out coming up in weeks ahead. But I want you to think about that Baptists and their influence have not only affected our whole country, there is a specific area in our country that they have had a major impact on. And um, it's, it's kind of a sweep of our southern states. It's called the Bible Belt. You know, you could call it the Baptist Belt if you wanted to because right now the Baptists are the only one that's really preaching and teaching the Bible as far as my opinion goes for what little that's worth. But where do you, who do you think focused on that? Uh, the Bible Belt, now get this, has produced more churches, more pastors, and more missionaries than any other country or area in the world. How did they do that? By preaching the Word. By preaching the Word of God and believing God's Word. Okay. And it was basically primarily, and again, I'm not trying to toot our own horn, but it was the Bible-believing Baptist that was instrumental in doing that. Okay. So I have a book with me. I'm going to read a a few inserts with you. Um, So just bear with me a little bit. It says here, and this is a really neat book. I got it from the library here. It's called Baptist Patriots 
and the American Revolution and the fact of and the part that the Baptists have played in our, our religious freedom here. It says because of the persecution of the Baptist people that endured throughout Europe's history through the Dark Ages, and the Lord's churches did not know of true liberty in any real sense, but from the dark, damp, tortured chambers and the burning stakes of Roman Catholicism, the early Baptist groups dreamed of a day when they could have their own public churches with their own pastors. Indeed, one of the untold stories of the Lord's churches throughout the church age is the hunger for liberty of conscience that God's people possessed, and Baptists have always had a yearning for religi- religious liberty. Baptist Christianity started out in the position that made this longing for liberty a reality from the very beginning. The first Baptist, who's the first Baptist? John. John. <laughs> we'll call him a Baptist, just because the Bible says that. Uh, I got a story with that too, Roger. I can tell you that later too. Uh, uh, he had his head cut off because he did what? Because of speaking the word of God. Okay, Jesus Christ was crucified on a cruel Roman cross and the apostles are known to have suffered horrible tortures and deaths for identifying with Christ. In the early centuries, imperial persecutions terrorized the primitive Baptist assemblies across Europe as men like uh, Domitian, and Diocletian and Nero considered torturing God's people a fun activity as if they were playing ball or going on an afternoon hunting trip with their children. In AD 313, the Roman Catholic institution had its early foundation laid by the Roman Emperor Constantine, which we talked about. And Augustine of Hippo would then lay the heretical doctrinal foundation for this corrupt institution. The theology of Augustine became the framework for all of Catholic belief. This is often called the Dominion Theology as propagated the idea that the Roman Catholic institution is the kingdom of God on earth and must therefore march forward and gain new ground. Augustine laid out this idea in his book, City of God. So now you know where I get some of my, my background. Every sort of cohesion came up and including burning people alive and cutting their insides out was practiced and justified within this corrupt system. Hence, on the heels of the creation of this murderous institution flung wide open the door of the Dark Ages. And for the next 1,100 years, the Lord's churches were massacred from the dungeons of Rome to the valleys of Piedmont to the burning stakes of England and beyond. The Christian groups that were slanderously called Anabaptists because of their demand for scriptural salvation and baptism, were stoned, burned, disemboweled, decapitated, and literally mutilated and cut to bits by the millions. When the Protestant Reformation began, it did not take long for the Baptists to realize that there was largely no place of acceptance among the leading reformers for them. So again, when Martin Luther, when the Presbyterians, when all these other groups began coming out, the Reformers, the true Protestants came out of the Catholic Church that started to believe some of the biblical principles that the Baptists have always believed. The Baptists didn't even have a friend with them because once they gained power, they started persecuting the Baptists. So the Baptists have always been persecuted, okay? even during uh, the time of the Reformation. Oliver Cromwell, although he was a political leader, became one of the only men of renown during the 16th and 17th century to openly accepted the Baptist. 
Sadly, this love affair dissolved quickly after Cromwell rose higher and became Lord Protector. As the Baptists began to migrate to America, they were shocked and disappointed to see the things would be no different here. The state-sponsored churches were quickly set up in America, and the state church colonial charters and laws written, signed and then ratified, and the Baptists were disenfranchised, and the quest for liberty carried on right up to the better end of the 18th century. So everything that was going on in Europe started to take place here until... God started moving among the Baptists and started getting things to change, okay? And so, uh, now how many of you have... Um, now, you guys know I like cartoons, right? There was, a, there was an old cartoon movie called Fievel Comes to... Was it Fievel Comes to America? Does anybody remember that? The Mouse, yeah. okay? You still, I think I still have that. In that, he's in Europe, and they're leaving Europe to come to America. And when they get to America, because they sing this song, and it's a, it's a Disney, I guess it's Disney. I hate to say that anymore. And it's this story about this, this group of mice that come to America because they want freedom. And when they get here, and they sing this song, oh, there's, there is no what in America? Carrie? There's no cats in America. They're singing, there's freedom in America. There's no cats in America. And this, this, all these mice, and they, they shows them go up the ladder to get on this ship to sail to America. And they get over here, and Fievel's this little mouse, and he's so disappointed because guess what he finds out? There's cats in America too. And so it kind of goes as, as a kind of a kid story on Freedom and how they people or mice at this point they leave Europe to come to America and yet they're not finding the freedom that they thought they would have. That's really the Baptist because when they came to America, they thought we're in a new land, we're in a new place, and then they found out real quickly that there were church states being set up. And we'll find out even coming up in a few weeks later that there were Baptists that was tortured. There was a Baptist that was put in jail. There was a Baptist that was whipped. And there was a Baptist lady that refused to be, uh, that refused the baptism of the congregational church that was hanged in Boston, Massachusetts. And yet, that's pretty extreme. And so when they got to America, it didn't get set up just right away. So we really need to, like I said before, if you love your religious freedom, go hug a Baptist. Mark's sitting right up here. You're a Baptist, aren't you? Yeah. Okay. Give Mark a hug. But I mean, hug a Baptist, because it was the Baptist that brought about the religious freedom. I got to keep going or I won't be done today. So, um, it's the Baptists that have kept our morales in check the last 200 years. And I think we're losing, losing that right now. Uh, like I said, the Baptist belt has produced more more churches, more pastors and missionaries than any other area of the world. As the Baptists brought about religious freedom. So, um, let me talk about a man named John Leland. He's a Baptist, and he was took a big part in the ratifying of the Bill of Rights. Because the Bill of Rights does what? Again, it gives us religious freedom. Okay? Um, so let me read you just a little bit about this guy. And he happened to be, get this, a Baptist minister. Okay. Uh, this guy's name was John Leland. 
He became a force relentlessly fighting for a complete separation of church and state in Virginia in the late 1700s. Okay? And so in 1786, the Baptist General Committee backed Leland and a man by Reuben Ford in an effort to repeal an act that incorporated the Episcopal Church to become the church or the state church. So in the state of Virginia, they're trying to make the Episcopal Church the state church. So in that, not only would they be the state church, your taxes would go to pay for them, further pastors, further land, further churches. You had no say in the matter. Okay. So that was going on in the late 1700s. Okay. So who's the Episcopal Church? What church would that be? Well, that's the, the Episcopal Church is actually the Church of England. And the only difference is between them and the Catholic Church is the head of the Church of England is the king. And the only reason he did that was because he wanted to get a new wife, divorce his wife, I think Anne Boyland, because he wanted a new wife, and the Catholic Church wouldn't give him a divorce. And so he said, forget you, I'm starting my own religion, and I'm getting rid of my wife and marrying another one. So he became the head of the church. And today you can see any time things go on in England, they have all the pompous stuff. It looks exactly like the Catholic Church, only they don't agree. They, the head's not the Pope. Okay, It's the king. He just decided to make his own religion up, kind of like what they did. So does that, does that, does that mean that right now the queen is the head of the Episcopal Church there? Good question. Since there's not a king, I would say it would go to her. And so for, for years and years, the joke was that the only difference between an Episcopalian and a Catholic was Episcopalians just can't read Latin. <laughs> that was the joke. It's the same thing. It, they, they have the same the same traditions. Everything else is the same. Okay. I would say also that they can marry, and the Catholic priests can't marry. That that might be true. That I'd have to go back and look. So let's go back and look at this guy. So he he's trying to this guy by the name of of John Leland is trying to fight this church state going on in Virginia. And at that point in the late 1700s, the Baptists was flooding Virginia because guess what they were doing? They were preaching the gospel. People were getting saved. Churches were being started and they were sending out people to preach the gospel. Exactly what should have been happening. And Virginia was getting flooded with Baptists because of their teaching. Okay, And let's see. So uh, the Baptists, with their petitions, were successful to the act uh, of, of stopping this state church in Virginia, of the Episcopalian church. And so the condition in Virginia, the Baptist uh, liberty was greatly improving. There was no longer looked upon with widespread disdain as they had been before Leland arrived in Virginia, the Baptist. There was, however, one more war for Leland to to wards, and this would prove him to be the most important civil duty that Leland would perform in his life. So let me go a little farther here. John Leland, James Madison, and the Bill of Rights. So when the Constitution was written and submitted to the states for consideration, John Leland's critical eye noticed a key provision was excluded. 
The provision he was looking for was a statement that would ingrain the principles of religious freedom in our Constitution and a separation of church and state. The Constitution, however, only contained one reference to religion, and that being the prohibition of religious tests as qualifications for federal offices. Although Article uh, 6 is a great inclusion, it wasn't enough for Mr. Leland. The Baptist General Committee agreed with Leland that the Constitution was not sufficient without a declaration of full religious liberty. At this time, all eyes were on the state of Virginia. The state was by position, size, and prestige delicately balanced between approval and disapproval. James Madison was in New York writing the Federalist Papers, and when he received a letter from his father, James Madison Sr., who wrote the following on January the 30th of 1788. The Baptists are now generally opposed to it, the Constitution. Then on February the 17th, James Gordon Jr., a candidate for the Constitutional Congress himself, wrote to Madison and said, I think it is incumbent on you without delay to repair to this state as the loss of the Constitution in this state may involve consequences that are the most alarming to every citizen in America. And so let me tell you what's going on. They were getting ready to vote on the Constitution and because religious freedom was not included in that Constitution, all the Baptists in Virginia was not going to vote for it. And so the Constitution would not pass. So that's what's going on here. And so at this time, Madison, he decided to run for a seat at the ratifying convention, and he left for Virginia. While in Fredericksburg, he received yet another letter which alarmed him. And this letter was written by Captain Joseph Spencer, a Baptist who at one time had, persecu had been persecuted and imprisoned in Virginia. And he read, the Constitution has its enemies in Orange, which is a county in Virginia, and the preachers of that society are much alarmed, fearing religious liberty is not sufficiently secured. Mr. Leland and Mr. Bledsoe and, and the Sanders are the most public men of this society. Therefore, as Mr. Uh, Leland uh, lies in your way home from Fredericksburg to Orange, I'd advise you to call on him and spend a few hours in his company. So Madison stops and he sees this guy Leland and they're, they're talking about trying to get the Constitution to pass and John Leland says it isn't going to pass unless you got some, put some religious freedom in this thing. And Madison is wanting it to pass so they make, they make a deal. Now this is not a bad deal. You know, you know how Congress likes to make deals. So Madison said, if the Baptists would get behind me and, and the Constitution, I'll make sure we get an inclusion in the Constitution that allows for religious freedom. So if the Baptists were the lobbyists... So the, so the Baptists would allow it to go through. Interesting, right? And yet, the Constitution passes and it's not in there yet, but yet, coming up in the Bill of Rights, it's number one. Yeah, but it took 13 years for that to happen. Everything's a battle. It was a battle. And I know I'm probably boring you with some of the details, but basically Madison, who later ends up being one of the presidents of the United States, he writes, along with Jefferson, the Bill of Rights, which passed on 1791, and they only got passed as a result, and the Constitution only got passed because of the Baptist. And the Baptist was sticklers 
and saying we need religious freedom in our constitution, if not in our constitution, in an amendment. And if that hadn't happened, we might have had a church state. But it was the Baptists that pushed that through. Let me see if I have anything else to, to read. Um, and so Madison got the Constitution to pass, and he, he was true to his word. It says, The following year, with the full vote of the Baptists, Madison handed James Monroe a crushing defeat. He was elected into Congress and went on to write and helped write the Bill of Rights and get those to pass, which again say, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise of. When that was put into the Bill of Rights, it, it, it stopped any state churches. So now the state, the federal government, cannot infringe on anybody's religious freedom. Now, Today, they want to push that the other way and say, well, not out, there's a separation of church and state where, where the state can't tell the church what to do, but then the church can't tell what the, the state to do. That's not what it says. It just basically says, our government cannot force any religious laws on anybody that, because the citizens of our country have religious freedom to worship any way they choose. That wouldn't have got put in our Constitution unless the Baptists hadn't pushed it. That's a fact. And so I never knew that going, growing up and seeing that. And so we're going to celebrate the 4th of July, which is the Declaration of Independence, which is fabulous to get us away from England, but it's the Bill of Rights that got us religious freedom to worship the way we want. And that's another reason, and God was involved in that, to get that to happen, because no other country in the world up until that time had had that. The Baptists all through history have had to run from country to country to country to escape persecution. And it wasn't until the United States got here, until we got here, and the, and the Baptists became a, a force in the, in the state of Virginia to help force the laws. At one point I studied that they wanted to make Virginia the state church, the Baptist church. And they tried to push that. And they had... Who tried to push it? Uh, the state did. And the, guess who opposed it? The Baptist. the Baptist. And the Baptist said no. Even though they had this chance of... They would be the big shot and they could do whatever they wanted. They said no. We need religious freedom because they had been persecuted for so long. They're like, no, we, we don't want to get to the point where we have the power and we persecute somebody else. Everybody should have the right to worship the way they are. And so that's another reason why God has blessed this country. So tomorrow when you're celebrating the 4th of July, just think about that. Think about all the things our forefathers have done, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitutions, the Bill of Rights. Uh, so, not a, number one was a religion of, 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 of free religion, the religion of speech. And what's, what's amendment number two of the Bill of Rights? The right to bear arms. The, the right to bear arms. Uh, the six, number six was the right to be tried by a jury. Which, you know, you don't think about things, but we do, right? 
we have a right to be tried by a jury or we have, you know, or not just a judge. That was a right for the people. Everything in our Constitution is really made for the people. And yet I know we, we live here and half the time we think Congress is just working for themselves, but they need to be working for us because that's how it was designed. So I'm going to pray we'll be done, but just think about tomorrow. Like I said, go hug a Baptist. Tell people that, you know, uh, I, I'm very pleased that, that the Baptist church got some recognition and yet no, nobody knows this. Nobody knows that we have religious freedom in our country because of a Baptist group. Do they? Did you know that? And yet, we'll go into detail coming up, and I've probably said that already in here, in George Washington's army, that the majority of his people that was fighting underneath him were Baptist. And he wasn't Baptist. And yet, at the end of the war, he goes, how can... And he was the president when the Bill of Rights passed. George Washington was. So all these guys were kind of intertwined. You got Jefferson, you got Washington, you got Madison, you got some of these guys wanting it. In fact, I think Patrick Henry wanted Virginia to be an Episcopalian. I think that's what he was pushing for that. And so, but, but that got voted down. Thank goodness for that. But, uh, you know, why is our country so great? Because we've put God in our country, and that's why. Okay? So let's pray, and we'll be done. Father in heaven, we do come before you, and, and Lord, we are thankful that we live in a country that we are free to worship you without being hunted or without being, uh, without being killed, without being persecuted, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we thank you for the open doors that you've given to us, not only to our families and our friends and the people around us, but opportunities to, to take your gospel, not just here, but to uh, places around the world and support missionaries and, and, and be involved in, in a world endeavor to, to get the Great Commission out there, Lord. So we pray, we thank you for that, and I, I pray that our church would just continue to fulfill the Great Commission within the lives of the, of the individual. So we pray for that this morning. And as we celebrate uh, the 4th of July tomorrow, help us to realize that, it's, that uh, it's, it's the Christians, the Bible-believing Christians that have helped form our country, have fought for our country, and helped put into it the laws that we need so we have the, the freedom that we do. So we thank you for them. We thank you for you. And I pray that we would just carry on that in our lives. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.